You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I invite you to follow along as I read verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The myrrh of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations when an olive tree is beaten as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voice. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man, and it always and it sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun is shamed. The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You and we stand before this passage, Father, and we look to You. O Father, that You may be pleased to teach us, O Father. Teach us from this passage, O Lord. Open up our eyes that we may see the truths of this passage. Open up our hearts that we may take in the certainty of this passage. Oh, Father, give to us understanding. Help us to apply this to the hour that you have brought us to. And, oh, Father, may we see the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the midst of this, oh, Father. Give us a clear sight of him, oh, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we take a break from our study in John's Gospel uh, to what might be considered a really unusual passage uh, for the time or the season of Advent. Um, I've done this before, though. I remember uh, one year uh, preaching a, a Christmas Eve service from the book of Revelation, actually, and um, believe it or not, it, it really worked well. Um, it was uh, out at Mill Creek. Um, it was quite a few years ago. The church was packed that night. It was a wonderful service that night. And, and um, I would say it was probably six or seven years later, one of the folks that was present at that service uh, approached me. I had went to visit somebody that was uh, suffering with cancer. 
And she approached me and she said, you know, you preached a sermon on Christmas Eve a number of years ago in the book of Revelation. And she gave me back the sermon points that I had shared that night. It was more clear in her mind. It was in mine and I haven't wanted preached it. Uh, so um, I at first these texts may seem quite unusual for the season that we've come into. But I think as we begin to look at them a little more uh, closely, we'll see that they have great relevance uh, for the season that we've come to. And really, by, <laughs> for that matter, I mean, has 2020 been a usual year anyway? You know, as I was thinking about, normally what I would do is I would go to the birth narratives of Christ or to the prophecies that speak of the birth narratives of Christ and speak of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's, that's primarily, I think, what I've done over the last 12 years here. Uh, and I couldn't kept finding myself being drawn to Isaiah 24. And I can remember thinking to myself, well, it's been an unusual year. Uh, we're going to have an unusual text uh, for this year. Now, before we jump into Isaiah 24, uh, because we're just jumping in almost kind of cold turkey here, um, Isaiah may not be as familiar to some of us as, say, Matthew or Luke. But um, let me, by way of introduction, just say a few words here. I will spend a lot of time on it, but... Um, Isaiah was probably from the uh, aristocracy, is probably an aristocrat of some description. There is an um, ancient tradition that holds that Isaiah actually was the cousin of King Uzziah. Uh, whether that is true or not, we, we don't know, but that would explain how Isaiah has access to all the kings that he has access to. I mean, of course, the Holy Spirit could give him access to anyone at any time. But he seems to uh, have uh, real easy access uh, to the kings. If you turn to uh, chapter 1, verse 1, there you, we see we get a little bit of a time frame. Uh, in verse 1, we have the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, these are the kings, kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, uh, this gives us a time frame, if you will. Isaiah's prophecy, his prophetic ministry, probably get, begins around 740 B.C. And what's amazing about it is it will continue all the way into probably around 680 B.C. Uh, in Isaiah 37, we have the record of the death of Sennacherib, who was king of Assyria, and we know that he died in 680 uh, B.C., uh, that gives Isaiah a prophetic ministry that spans six decades, 60 years. And you'll see in verse 1 uh, that these kings, they're all kings of Judah. Isaiah is what we call a southern prophet, if you will. And it's not because he's from Louisiana. It's because he prophesies to the southern kingdom. These masks are really weird because I can't tell if you're smiling. Uh, I can't tell if you're rolling. Oh, I can tell if you're rolling your eyes, but I can't tell. <laughs> Listen, I hope we don't have to get used to this. Anyway, back to the southern prophet. Um, he ministered primarily to Judah and Jerusalem. But that having been said, his ministry expands well beyond the walls of Jerusalem well beyond the walls of Judah. Uh, his ministry would extend all the way down into Egypt, all the way north into Syria, to Assyria, to Babylon, along the coast to uh, Tyre and Sidon, uh, to Edom and to Moab, to all of these various places. So it's a, it's a, it's a spectacular uh, ministry that Isaiah is given from the Lord. And in chapter 1, there you see verse 2, Isaiah makes, I mean, he gets right to the point. He's one of those preachers that does not beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. He's calling Judah of her wickedness or apostasy. Uh, in verse 21, he speaks to the uh, unfaithful city, if you will. That is Jerusalem in this context. In chapter 2, there uh, we have this, in the midst of, of, of this um, uh prophecy, this prophetic voice against uh, this apostasy, if you will, uh, you have this beautiful imagery of incredible grace. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all nations shall float to it. Uh, that's being carried out and conducted even now as we speak. That prophecy there is being uh, fulfilled uh, as we speak, as people from all walks of the world are being called uh, to the Lord. Uh, we are part of the fruition of that. And I draw your attention to this because this is uh, very um, uh, common in the prophets where they'll have verses of stern, uh, wrathful judgment, and then, in, and then almost with no um, transition, these utterances of incredible grace. So you have this, you have this, this stern judgment being denounced, and then you, it's almost like you come to this oasis of, of wonderful grace right there. Now, for most of us, we're probably familiar if, uh, with Isaiah 6, where we have the wonderful uh, call. We were just singing a hymn that makes reference to Isaiah 6, namely these angels with their wings that cover their eyes, covering their sleepless eyes. Uh, Isaiah 6 is pretty well known. Isaiah 7 and verse 14 is also very well known, uh, where uh, Isaiah gives to King Ahaz this sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew, of course, applies that uh, prophecy to Jesus uh, in his gospel. We read from another passage that's well known in chapter 9. There's another passage in 11 that's well known. And uh, aside from that, we probably would think of the servant passages, namely uh, the passage of the suffering servant in 52.13 through 53.12. A few other passages maybe. Uh, A reference to John the Baptist is quoted out of Isaiah. Um, Turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth from Isaiah 45. Maybe a passage out of uh, Isaiah 61. What I'm trying to say is our understanding of Isaiah is somewhat piecemeal, isn't it? Where we know certain things about Isaiah, but we don't know the context of those things. All these passages that we know so well about Isaiah have a context, and it's very rare that we stop and we actually take a look at the context of which these things are coming out of, isn't it? Um, So if you look at chapter 13, chapter 13, beginning with this chapter, Isaiah begins to pronounce judgment on one nation after another, one nation after another. It begins with Babylon. And Babylon is actually going to be the instrument upon which the Lord judges Judah, the southern kingdom. He uses Assyria to judge and carry away the northern kingdom, that is Israel. He will use Babylon to judge the southern kingdom. And we have chapters 13 and 14, judgment against Babylon. Chapter 15, we have, well, before 14 is over, we have Assyria, an oracle concerning Assyria. One concerning Philistia. We have chapter 15, oracle concerning Moab. Damascus in chapter 17. Cush, which is Ethiopia in 18. Egypt in 19. And then we have uh, Babylon again in in chapter 21. And then we come to Jerusalem in chapter 22. uh, Denouncements and oracle against Jerusalem. And in chapter 23, we have an oracle against Tyre and Sidon, which are those coastland cities along the coast of the Holy Land. Now, all is this to say is that 13 through 23 is packed full of judgments concerning specific nations of the known world at this time. And when we come to chapter 24, many of you will have a heading over chapter 24 that will say something like judgment on the whole earth. So after having judgment on all these individual nations, it's almost like all of the thoughts are collected. Like Isaiah summarizing everything, and he's saying, okay, this is is judgment of the entire world. Now, I, I think that some of you who are younger than myself would probably conclude, um, I know that in my own generation... Many have said 
what is this world coming to? And we have said that because we have heard the generation that's come before us say that. And I would imagine that that same pattern, I think every generation has looked at all of the things that are going on in the world at the time and said, what is this world coming to? And I think 2020 is probably a time where that has been said quite a bit. When we look at everything that has happened in 2020, we was, we, we, many people could say, what is this world coming to? Now, the Christian should always be able to answer what this world is coming to because it's put forth for us right here in Isaiah 24. This is what this is what the world will come to at some point. Let's take a look at this uh, with this introduction in mind. Let's just take a quick look at these passages. In verse 1, we read, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Now, I don't know why, but every time I read that verse, I always think of being a kid playing on, in Shannon's woods, the, the uh, family that lived next door to us, practically next door. Uh, when you're in Hookstown, the houses aren't necessarily right next to each other. When we say next door, we might mean like, you know, uh, a little distance away. But we used to play in their woods. They had about 48 acres of property, and a, a significant amount of it was woods, and, you know, you're playing around in the woods and you see a log that's laying in the bed of the woods and you pick it up. When you pick it up and you roll it over, what do you see underneath? If it's summertime and it's damp, what do you got under there? You got lots of squiggly stuff, don't you? And really what's interesting is when you pick that up, some of you might be grossed out about that, I don't know, but when you pick that up and you look underneath, I mean, what has just happened to their world? Their world just got twisted and uprooted, didn't it? And what are they doing? They're filled with terror. They're, they're trying to scurry away. I mean, they're doing their best stuff with more legs than you can count. Is employing every one of them legs to try to hightail it out of there, right? And in no time, the whole thing clears, doesn't it? And I think that's the imagery that we have here. The Lord will empty the earth. He will make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And if you look at verse 2, he says, it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. Now, what is that all about? Well, what that is teaching is that there is no one, no unbelieving soul, regardless of what social strata they are in, regardless of what economic strata they are in, will be insulated from this event. It's going to affect them all. It doesn't make any difference if you're just a common member of a parish or if you're the priest. It doesn't make any difference if you're a slave or you're the master. It doesn't make any difference if you're the maid or the mistress, the buyer or the seller the lender or the borrower, the creditor or the debtor. One scholar has pointed out that it seems that it's affected religious life, household life, and commercial life. Now, whether the Holy Spirit has that exactly in mind, I don't know. But you can see it's a thorough list, isn't it? And it'll get even more thorough as we go along. No one, no unbelieving soul is going to be insulated from this event it doesn't matter if you are the poorest man in the gutter or you are the richest man in Silicon Valley. It isn't going to make any difference. You look at verse 3, it's kind of a recap of what we've already seen in verse 1. The earth shall be uh, utterly empty and utterly plundered. Notice the end there. For the Lord has spoken His word. Now, why is that added in? Isaiah uses that phrase. If you read through Isaiah, you'll encounter that phrase from time to time. And it's kind of a similar thing that Jesus, we've seen Jesus do in John chapter 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you. 
What's he saying there? You know, we've looked at that. What he's saying is what I'm about to say is certain as certain it can be. And that's what's in view here. This is going to happen. You see, we ignore Isaiah 24 because we don't like its message. But what we have to understand is Isaiah 24 is just as certain as the passages we like. Isaiah 24 is just as much the Word of God as Romans 10 that says, all who call upon the Lord shall be saved. They're equally true. They're equally certain. They need to be equally uh, taken in. And verse 3 says, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. Now, in theology, we have a doctrine known as total depravity. And some of you are familiar with that doctrine. And total, total depravity teaches this. It teaches that we are depraved in every faculty of our being. That means we are depraved in our mental ability. We're depraved in our physical ability. We're depraved in our morals. We're depraved spiritually. We're depraved emotionally. Uh, every faculty that we have has been touched with the depravity of sin. That's what total depravity teaches. But what total depravity doesn't teach is utter depravity. And what that means is if we were utterly depraved, then we would be as depraved as we possibly could be. And thank goodness, by God's common grace, that's not the case. That will be the case in hell. But by God's common grace, that is not the case here right now. If it was, we would destroy ourselves. We would quickly destroy everything. But here in verse 3, notice the word that's used, the word utterly. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. Now, what does it mean to plunder something? To plunder something, when a nation would go into another nation and plunder that nation, what they would do is they would search for everything that's valuable and they would take it and they would carry it away. So what this, what this vision, what this prophecy is, is that everything on earth that is of value is going to be taken away. Nothing is going to be left behind because it's not just going to be totally, totally plundered. It's going to be utterly plundered. Everything of value will be taken away. And consequently, that makes perfect sense why we read in verse 4, the earth mourns and withers. Of course it mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. Notice the highest people of the earth languish. You see, there's another reference. You know, the elite. The elite. Just a handful of folks in the United States that think they're so arrogant, they think that, that they should determine how the rest of us think and live and uh, they should determine it all for us. And, and they make these policies that don't affect them. In fact, if it does affect them, it only serves to make them more powerful and more wealthy. But it oppresses other people in the country. You see, the highest people, these elite, will not be insulated from this event. The earth mourns, it withers, the world languishes. Verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. We could preach probably four or five sermons from this single verse easily. But notice a principle here. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. God created mankind and gave him the charge in chapter 1, verse 28, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. What does that mean? That means we were created in the image of God to be his vice regents in order to reflect His glory, to reflect His light, to reflect His righteousness, to be His governors on earth, if you will, and to care for His world. But we have rebelled against the Lord. We have said no. And as a consequence, we have brought a curse upon the earth, haven't we? And the, and the earth now lies defiled under its inhabitants who are sinful. Uh, Alec Mature, who, is a, uh, who was, he, was a, he, went, he went to be with the Lord a few years ago, but he was an outstanding Old Testament scholar. He said, he, he divided this into three things, and I'm thankful for his insight because 
Here we see they, we, we see they have transgressed the laws, they've violated the statutes, they've broken the everlasting covenant. I'm thankful for his insights because I would have seen transgressed the laws and violated the statutes as synonyms, as synonymous parallel, as saying the same thing twice, if you will. But no, he, he very masterfully points out that there are three things going on here. And see if they don't sound familiar. First, they have transgressed the laws. What does that mean? That means they have forsaken God's Word. His laws that are written in His Word, they have forsaken. They have forsaken those. They've said, no, get that book away from me. Take those Ten Commandments down. Secondly, they have violated the statutes. Now, what does that mean? Violating the statutes. It literally means altered or changed. And the idea here, as Alec Montier points out, the idea here is they've substituted. They have taken God's morality away and they have substituted it with their own morality. Does that sound hauntingly familiar? You know, even though God has created us to be male and female, we don't care. We're going to teach a generation that their problem is they're mixed up about it. Your problem really is you're a little boy in a girl's body, and your problem is you're a little girl in a boy's body. And anybody that disagrees with us is immoral. That is a textbook example of what Isaiah is talking about. I am so fearful for this generation that's being raised like that because how is an eight-year-old to know the difference? So they fill them up with these drugs that they have no idea what's going to do to these kids 15 years from now, 20 years from now. It should have every eye in this room wet of what these monsters are trying to do to these kids. These policies that are being advocated aren't just a little bit off. They're monstrous. They're absolutely monstrous. And here we see them. The third thing here is they've broken the everlasting covenant. A lot of ink has been spilled on this one. What exact, what exact covenant is in view here? And I don't want to get into all of that. We, could, we, we waste all of our time on that, and I do believe it would be a waste of time. I think it's very simply this. To have a relationship with God, you have to enter into a covenant relationship. In other words, in this dispensation, in this administration of the covenant of grace, we can only have a relationship with God one way. We enter into the new covenant with Him, don't we? The covenant of grace. And this has been forsaken. They've said, no, instead of entering into a covenant relationship and fellowship with the Lord, we are going to continue to shake our fist at him. And this is what we have in Psalm 2, for example, where the nations are raging and the kings are plotting, the rulers and the people are plotting together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast away his cords and let us burst his bond. That's what's going on there in verse Five. And verse 6, therefore, as a consequence of this, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. There is an important principle here that we need to make sure that we do not leave this room with, without forgetting. We cannot forget this principle. Mankind in their sin, actually in our sin, what do we actually do? we actually destroy the very things that are vital for our existence. Let's think about it. Every time we sin, or every time, let's, let's, use, let's, use, let's, let's just use our nation as an example. Every time we break one law in our nation, we get used to breaking that law. And we break that law again, and we break that law again, and we break that law again. So we get used to breaking those laws. Then what do we do? We start breaking other laws. And we break other laws. And we break other laws. Until it comes to the point where people are breaking the law in front of cameras. And nothing is done about it. We become increasingly lawless as we inch into lawlessness. Now here's a question. Can we survive in lawlessness? And the answer is no. We, who is safe in a land of lawlessness? Who is safe? 
Who is secure in a land of lawlessness? And the answer is no one. We can't live that way. So mankind in his sin actually destroys the very things that he needs to be safe and secure. And you can apply that to every, you can take that principle and you can apply it to every aspect of life, every aspect of life. You can apply it to marriages, you can apply it to everything, everything. The curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, and all the merry-hearted sigh. Why? What is going on there? It's poetry. The wine, the wine mourns. Why? There's no grapes. What grapes are left? If there's any left, they're all shriveled. They're withered. Verse 8, the mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. No, uh, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. What is verse 8 and 9 about? Real simple. The party is over. The party is over. You know, one of the interesting things about 2020 is the Lord did bring the party to a stop, didn't He? Let's think about it. This time last year, there isn't a one of us that would have said that could have predicted what 2020 was going to be like. I mean, we didn't see that coming. No one saw that coming. Then you hear a little bit about this virus that gets away from this lab in Wuhan. You're in all these, you're hearing all kinds of these conflicting stories, and it's over in China. But then we hear a couple, you know, insulated cases. I think what were the first ones in California, maybe? I don't know. I don't remember. But then come March. What happened in March? There's no sports. The Lord turned the world off. And He did it with a flu. It's this little bug. And the party was over, wasn't it? And what we're seeing in micro in 2020 is what is being said will certainly happen in micro in Isaiah 24. He continues, the wasted city, verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. What is the wasted city? The wasted city in this, in this context is the city of fallen man. It would, be, it would be New York City would be a classic example of the city that is shaking its fist at God. Chicago, all of these major cities that really largely are shaking their fists at God. It's the, it's the, think of the Tower of Babel. It's this, it's this idea of shaking one's fist at the Lord, saying, no, I am going to live my way. I'm not going to live your way. I'm going to live my way and everything that it entails, everything that it entails. And here we're told the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. Now, uh, there's a couple of ways that this could be looked at. Some scholars say that because of the rubble of this catastrophe, the rubble will be against the doors of the houses, making them inaccessible. Um, that's possible. Um, what I think is that everyone's going to run to their houses and lock themselves in it. Think about what has happened in some of the cities of the United States this year. What did people do as anarchy took place on the streets? If that was going on right here in Main Street, what would you do? You'd run in your house. You'd lock your doors. Verse 11, there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. Okay, if you're dependent upon alcohol and there's a lack of wine, you've got a problem. That's why when everything was shut down, people were confused. It's like you've shut down churches, but you're allowing liquor stores to be open. Well, the fact is, our, our nation is full of drunks. We're full of people who, uh, uh, we're, we're just full of people who are drinking themselves to death. And if you stop, if you just stop like that, what's going to happen? There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. 
The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Imagine a beautiful, luscious vine full of grapes. And then the next day, they come in and they harvest that vine. What would be left afterwards? Possibly you could find a grape here or there that they missed, but a lot of the grapes that would be left behind would be ones that weren't even suitable to be picked. To be picked, And that's the imagery after this is over. That's the imagery here. If you skip down to verse 17, terror in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. Verse 18, for he who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. In, in other words, a person who escapes one wave of judgment will only find themselves caught in a second wave of judgment. In verse 18. Verse 19, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. Its transgression lays heavy upon it. It falls and will not see or rise again. Notice verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. You see, no one escapes this, not even the fallen angels. We could spend a lot of time on verse 21, and it would be a really interesting study, especially as we went into the New Testament and brought Jude 6 in, and some of Peter's stuff, and some of the, the, the parallel passages in Revelation. It would be quite interesting to do that. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded. The sun is shamed for the Lord of hosts on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. What? will become of this world. Isaiah 24. Now, if... <laughs> you know, whatever you do, don't close in prayer now like they used to do years ago. Jonathan Edwards would preach a message like this and say, well, next week we're going to look at the grace. If we listen really carefully in the midst of all of this. In fact, if we just take our hearts and we listen, let's just listen. Let's listen as closely as we can listen. Because when we do that, we will hear singing. Not only will we hear singing, we will hear singing for joy. Look at verse 14. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. See how that comes out of nowhere? What are they singing about? Oh, verse 14. They're singing over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the West. <laughs> that is such an amazing... That is such an amazing thing because the gospel, the Apostle Paul, he takes the gospel which direction? He goes west. And they shout from the west over the majesty of the Lord. Verse 15, Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord in the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we're starting to see the point of this whole passage. What is the point of this passage? The point of this passage is safety and security in the midst of judgment. Safety and security in the midst of judgment. And how is that going to be possible? Isaiah 9. Turn with me to Isaiah 9, verse 6. This is the only thing that makes this possible. For to us, a child is born. You see, when we understand that, we are now never going to hallmark Christmas again. We're never going to look 
at Jesus in a manger as though He's some porcelain nativity scene that we bring out this time of the year. It's impossible to do that once you have studied Isaiah 24. But you see, if we get rid of Isaiah 24 and we get rid of all the parallel passages Isaiah 24, well, then it's easy to hallmark Christmas, isn't it? And it just becomes this sentimentality thing and brings back memories of being at Grandma's house, which is wonderful. I'm not, don't, don't misunderstand me. I have memories of Grandma's house that I wouldn't trade for anything. But this gives us a new meaning for verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Kings will come, kings will go. Presidents will come, presidents will go. But there is one who is seated upon the throne for all eternity and of his kingdom. His kingdom is growing. His kingdom is amassing. His kingdom is righteousness. His kingdom is forever. And it's a kingdom of peace. And not only is he a king, but he is a wonderful counselor. Not only is he a wonderful counselor, he's a prince of peace. Not only is he a prince of peace, he's an everlasting father. Not only is he an everlasting father, but he is mighty God. So we can read about Isaiah 24. And when we read about Isaiah 24, our posture, if you keep your hand in Isaiah 9 and you go back to Isaiah 24 again, I know that's hard to do if you're using your phone. It's a, um, they need to have like windows where you can put a window over here. And, but maybe one of these days. Um, but if you go back to verse 16, from the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But notice what comes next. But I say I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. What's going on there? Is this wonderful for Isaiah to look at? Is Isaiah 24 wonderful for us to look at? It shouldn't be. You know, sometimes people refer to fire and brimstone sermons. They probably don't refer to it no more because they haven't been preached in so long that you never hear them anymore. And there is a there is a pedigree of fire and brimstone sermons that ought to be rejected. And that's that's when, and you've heard me say this before, that's when the preacher stands up and decries judgment and condemnation upon the world with this grin on his face like he can't wait to see it happen. That has to go. You have to wonder if a person that can preach like that's even saved. Because quite frankly, how, how, there's only one way we can be spared from Isaiah 24, and that's to receive grace, isn't it? I don't remember since November 3rd, I do not remember grieving for the United States like I have grieved for the United States ever since. And it's not, it's, it's not because of the outcome of the election. It's because of the way the election took place. The lawlessness is permeating itself into every aspect of the fabric of our country. Remember, one of the acts of judgment is going to be the utter plundering of the earth. What does that mean? That means that everything that is valuable here is going to be taken away. Is truth valuable? It's being taken away. We're being lied to so much of the time. And we all know it. And we start to become numb to it and we start to act like it doesn't. Listen, it matters. 
It matters. You see, we can't live without truth. We can't survive in 100% falsehood. And let's think about all of the arenas in our country right now where truth is being, it's being evacuated. It's being, it's being, it's almost like a vacuum cleaner is just drawing it up. I mean, in the church, even in the church is a place where you should hear the truth. How many, how many people are going to hear the truth today? How many people are going to hear a false gospel today? Listen, friends, a staggering amount of people are going to hear a false gospel today. They're going to be told, it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter how you think, it doesn't matter what you do, God loves you and He wants the best for you and this is your best life now and all that stuff. We can't live like that. We can't live like that. Back to, John, back to, to Isaiah 9. Our only recourse is in what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. A child is born, to us a son is given. Our God stepped into time, space, and history in order to bring truth to us, in order to bring life to us, in order to take away the falsehood to take away the chaos, to take away the lawlessness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you this morning. Father, we thank you that you have been pleased to come in the person of Jesus Christ, and you have been pleased, O oh Father, to give us such a secure word as we look at Isaiah 24 and we see where this world is going, and we see what will certainly happen to this world. Oh, Father, our hearts are so warmed. They're so warmed by verses 14 and 15 and half of 16 that in the midst of all this judgment, we hear the singing and singing over, over your majesty, singing from the west, calling the east to join in. And Father, we know that this singing is only possible because you have come in the person of Jesus Christ and you have come in order to deliver us from the wrath that we see in Isaiah 24. But, oh, Father, our hearts are broken because of the second part of verse 16. As we watch all this take place, Father, it breaks our hearts. We call on you, O Father, to save. We call on you, O Father, to dispatch your Holy Spirit, to open up hearts to receive, O Father. We thank you for the fact that those who call on you, those who put their faith and their trust in you, can be safe and secure in the midst of all of this. We thank you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this morning how um, wonderful it is to not only celebrate the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of God in the person of Christ this morning, but we're also are going to get to celebrate the resurrection, and especially in the respect that we're going to be coming to the table. You'll notice that the elements are are not present on the table. We've uh, reserved to keep them in the back um, just to bring them forward at the proper time. But um, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, um, as I say every uh, first Sunday of every month when we observe the Lord's Supper, uh, we need to be sure that we do not come in an unworthy manner. We need to repent of our sins, not only individually but as a church, and we recognize in the Lord's Supper that it's an institution that's been given to us by Christ. And in many ways, it serves really as an, I want to say an object lesson, but maybe an object reminder where it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. And I, this morning as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about all of those things that we looked at in Isaiah 24. All of that judgment, all of that wrath that we see in Isaiah 24. It is that that Jesus endured.
to save us from our sins. Even the sins that sometimes we think are just wee little bitty sins. See, our Lord is so perfectly pure that the little bitty sins that we think are little bitty sins are heinous and abominable to Him. And if that was all we had committed, if each one of us had only committed one of what we think is a little bitty sin, He would have still had to come and die on the cross and take the penalty of that wrath. So how much more did He have to endure? Because we know that many of our sins are not little bitty sins, are they? You see, this is, what, this is what changes us. I mean, what changes us is the fact that our, our King, the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, for the joy set before Him, namely obedience to the Father and the salvation of our souls, endured Isaiah 24 in our place for us. So let's prepare our hearts for this and let's ask, the Lord to forgive us of our sins. And if anyone is walking in sin or living in sin, I call on you to repent of your sin and would ask that you abstain from coming to the table because the Apostle Paul, he warns us, tells us not to come to the table in a manner that's unworthy. And please come and see me after the service so we can pray together and and we can get that sin behind you so that next month you can come to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we so thank you and praise you, Father, as we, as we come to this time. Oh Father, looking at your word and hearing your word and looking at the, the judgment that awaits this world and looking at the sheer fact that you have come in the person of Jesus Christ to spare your people from that judgment. Oh, Father, our hearts are moved. Our hearts are, our hearts are greatly moved, oh, Father. Lord, as we come to the table, as we come to that which Christ instituted himself, oh, Father, we, we do lift our sins up to you. Father, we, we now pause that we may, that we may uh, confess our sins individually before you. Father, not only do we confess our sins before you as individuals, but Father, we come before you and we confess our sins to you as a church, Father. We are a group of people who are saved from our sins. We are a group of people who still continue to sin, and we ask that you would forgive us. And we thank you, O oh Father. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard me say it many, many times, and I never get tired of saying it. My favorite thing as a, God, as a minister of the gospel is to, is to proclaim what we call assurance of pardon. And assurance of pardon simply means this, that if you've confessed your sins to the Lord, that He is righteous and just to forgive you of your sins, and not just forgive you of your sins, but cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Is that wonderful news or is that wonderful news? You can be cleansed. And you're cleansed by the blood of Christ shed on the cross and you're clothed with the perfect righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when you come to Him savingly and you repent of your sins. I'm going to ask Donald if you give me a hand. We'll bring the elements forward. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he dined with his, his disciples later, his apostles. And at one point during the supper, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And of course, he's not meaning that the bread literally turned into his body. It's a symbol. And 
At another point in the meal, he lifted up the cup and he said, this cup is a cup of the covenant which is poured out in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And with that act, he was ratifying the new covenant uh, with his very own blood. And there he institutes this uh, ordinance for us. Now, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's, why don't we go ahead? Sorry, I'm trying to get used to this COVID stuff. I'll just ask Troy and everybody to come forward. Yeah, go ahead. Just in the habit of doing it the old way. Go ahead, Tammy. Shine, you want to go on up? You guys just do circles. Go ahead, Dad. You're good. Go ahead, Tammy. You're good. The body of Christ, which is broken for us. The blood of Christ, which is poured out for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You loved us so much that you bled and died that we may live, that you endured your very own wrath for our sins in our place, that you may spare us, O oh Father, from having to undergo that wrath ourselves, which we could never do. We thank you, O oh Father, for sparing us of the judgment that we've just read and studied in Isaiah 24, 
But Father, we just stand in amazement that you would be willing to endure it for us. Oh, Father, help us. Help us, oh, Father, to see this time and season in a different light. That, oh, Father, in the midst of giving gifts and presents to one another, that, oh, Father, you are the, the greatest gift that you've ever given us is a gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given us this life. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.